Morning Artisan. It was so nice to see some of you on MegaZoom last week. If you missed that or if you aren't able to access Zoom, well, we missed you and we miss you. I'm sure looking forward to seeing more of you this summer uh, at gatherings in parks and reading groups and any other outdoorsy, COVID-safe kind of way. This morning's lectionary texts take us to the Psalms and the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're going to look at them alongside each other, collectively, letting them read each other and read us in turn. We'll begin with Psalm 13. I'll give you a second to turn there if you'd like to follow along, starting in verses 1 to 2. Psalm 13, the psalmist asks, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Once again this week, like last week, the lectionary rings with the cry of lament. Psalm 13 is a psalm that grieves, a psalm that protests and petitions God asking how long. I like how one commentator put it, that this kind of gut-wrenching prayer is based on a deep belief that a suffering life matters to God, that God listens to a suffering life's complaint. This phrase, how long, is likely one that's been on your lips lately. How long until our world's systems are made right, systems that serve those of us who are privileged at the deadly cost of those who aren't. How long will I keep living in isolation? How long till relationships are healed? This question has a long history before it, this question of how long. In somewhat recent history, Martin Luther King Jr. took up this cry, making how long a rallying question from which the civil rights movement drew its life. How long is a refrain or theme that permeates lots of King's sermons. At Selma, for example, he asked, How long will prejudice blind vision? And alongside this question, when will justice reign? For King, this collective lament, a lament drawn from scripture from the lips of those who suffered before him, whether Israelite or Black American, was a lament that fueled action. Right now, many of us are asking how long alongside the psalmist or alongside the voices of others whose bodies are oppressed or suffering. Maybe we're even remembering King's words at Selma in our own asking. And in response to the question, the question of how long, we, we often feel compelled to do something. I think this is the spirit stirring. I hope this is the spirit stirring, the voice of the Lord shaking, twisting, thundering people to wake us up from slumber, from the slumber of complacency. Today's gospel reading comes from Matthew 10, where Jesus instructs his 12 disciples about their ministry. This chapter contains many instructions on how a disciple should be in her ministry. It's often called the Little Commission in light of the Great Commission, which comes later in Matthew. Towards the end of this Little Commission, Jesus teaches, 
Matthew 10 verses uh, 40 to 42, if you want to follow along, if you want to turn there. Jesus teaches, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes someone known to be a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes someone known to be righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is known to be my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, disciples who will receive welcome as they go out into the world. And here Christ reminds them that their hosts, or those who will host them, are doing the exact same work they are, even if it takes a different shape. Here we read that we are to welcome each other, and that when we welcome each other, we welcome Christ. This tells me that our relations with each other are inseparable from our relation with God, intimately entwined. Your faith and life is not a silo, but rather part of an interactive ecosystem. I think these verses are about right relations, about how to extend ourselves to each other in a way that reflects God's own welcome to us. I love how the Episcopalian Reverend Marcia Paul puts it. Reading these verses, she says that in welcoming one another into our hearts, Jesus tells us we are welcoming him into our hearts, welcoming God. It's the old paradox that in giving you receive, it's in losing your life that you find it. It is in welcoming others that you experience Jesus' welcome. While these verses address the traveling disciples or the soon-to-be traveling disciples, we can read what they say to those who are soon to host them as well. We can read that in extending ourselves and in giving up some of what we might deem rightfully ours, our hard-earned living space, our cold water, in giving that up, we receive much more than if we hold it tightly. The kingdom's economy, its household logic, is one of giving to and receiving each other to help us give and receive God. This isn't flashy work per se, but the small and ordinary habits of being a people called to a larger whole. Last Sunday, Scott shared the messages translation of these verses, uh, which I want to emphasize again this morning. Because of how these words are phrased so dynamically there, they help me more clearly imagine how this teaching might take root in my own life. We are intimately linked in this harvest work, the message says. Anyone who accepts what you do accepts me, the one who sent you. Anyone who accepts what I do accepts my father who sent me. Accepting a messenger of God is as good as being God's messenger. Accepting someone's help is as good as giving someone help. This is a larger work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving 
makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. I love that. What this tells me is that there are many ways to be involved in kingdom work. That small good work matters just as much as big flashy action. In fact, in the long life of apprenticeship to a way, to the way, as Christ's first followers called it, it's the small unseen habits, the sustainable work of meeting the needs of the thirsty ones in your midst that shape us further. And it's okay to start small. Here God invites us to join his kingdom in the pursuit of sacrificial goodness to each other. And in doing so, God offers his own life. Yet that gift of God's life isn't proportional to the kind of work we do. If fanned by the spirit, all works grow. Your own small flame grafted into an immense forest fire. One part of the whole kingdom fire, if you will. The civil rights movement drew its action from lament, to be sure, but much of it also drew its action from a deep awareness of God's life given to this world, for this world. God's life embedded in our relationships, longing to make them right. God's life poured out for those who suffer. How long? King asked. Not long, he famously said. Not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming Lord. That's also from his sermon at Selma. King's was an act of hope rooted in a deep awareness of the work and person and character of Christ. An act of life rooted in the life of God. There's a long history of thinking about the relationship between a life of prayer and a life of work, between the way of contemplation and the way of action. If Matthew tells us something about the way of action, which, which I think it does, then our second lectionary psalm reveals a life of contemplation, or one angle of the life of contemplation. So we're looking at Psalm 89, if you want to turn to it and follow along. Here, the psalmist contemplates God's character. In verses 14 to 17, the psalmist writes, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. What does it mean, do you think, to walk in the light of your presence, Lord? Evidently, it doesn't mean to negate the suffering of the world with empty optimism. This psalm does not bypass or placate the world's hard realities. I say this because Psalm 89, like Psalm 13, is also a psalm of lament. By verse 46 of this psalm, the psalmist is asking as well, how long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Perhaps walking in the light of God's presence is a good way to describe the life of contemplation. A way of being inseparable from action, 
inseparable from lament and renewal, but a way ultimately rooted in the life of God. This week, I was introduced to the writings of Barbara A. Holmes, a black theologian who self-describes as a spiritual teacher, activist, and scholar focused on African-American spirituality, mysticism, cosmology, and culture. It's just from her website bio. But I started reading her book, a book called Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church, which is really great so far. Highly recommend it. In this book, Holmes describes the contemplative life, a life filled with prayerful practice. Particularly though, she describes how these practices have served oppressed bodies and movements that seek their liberation. Holmes explains how contemplation is a practice that engages us with God's presence, connecting us to an awareness of this presence in our lives and for our world. Specifically, she describes contemplative practices as postures that engage God's omnipresence. Such a good word, a bit of a big one, omnipresence just means ever-present or present everywhere. We get omnipresence from two parts, omnis and presence. Omnis means all, every, the whole, abundant, while presence means at hand or within reach. This tells me then, putting them together, that contemplative prayer is to be before a god who is abundantly within reach. There are many ways to put ourselves in postures that reorient us to this awareness of God's abundant presence. And I know many of us are very familiar with them. Our church is no stranger to contemplative practice, thanks in part to Nelson. But in case this is new to you, I'll just list a few practices in the slides for the sake of your own exploration later such as Centering Prayer, Lectio Divina, Breath-Based Repetition of the Jesus Prayer. These days you might see Nelson guide us through one of these on any given Monday evening prayer night or a Wednesday lunch hour Lectio maybe. In her book, Holmes clarifies that contemplation is not an escape from the din of daily life. Rather, it requires full entry into the fray, but on different terms. In this, I think it's inseparable from our relations to each other. Holmes describes contemplation further, saying, As I see it, the task is threefold. First, the human spirit must connect to the eternal by turning towards God's imminence and ineffability with yearning. Eminence and ineffability, in other words, God's presence and mystery. So this first step is a turning towards God, a reorienting, so that we can engage our minds in a practice that is aware of him. Second, each person, she says, must explore the inner reality of her humanity, facing unmet potential and failure with honesty and grace. So what Holmes is saying is that in contemplation, there's a sense we encounter and examine our truest selves, our God-made selves, trying to shed the layers of how we construct ourselves in this world, 
how we construct ourselves. In this stage, the spirit often dredges up stuff for our consideration, reminding us that we're created and loved and reminding us to return to that place, to live from that place. Finally, Holmes writes, each one of us must face the unlovable neighbor, the enemy outside of our embrace, the shadow skulking in the recesses of our own hearts. Here, in this final stage, we resurface for lack of better language, but we resurface changed. Only then, Holmes says, can we declare God's perplexing and unlikely peace on earth. Why is it that peace is achieved only then, only after we are moved to examine our relations to each other? Peace is achieved only when we face each other because I think, as King said, as Isaiah said, and as protesters around the city and country are saying again, no justice, no peace, no right relations, no kingdom peace. Without these right relations, without justice, there's just false peace. So contemplation shapes our relations to each other. It's not just a nice hobby, but a transformative practice that leads to action. Like faith without works is dead, so contemplation without action is probably missing the life it was meant to always lead to in the first place. I like how Philena Hertz puts it. If we are engaged in true, pure, contemplative practice, we'll be compelled to engage. And yet, this engaged action needs to lead us back to contemplation, a continuous return to the source, which is God's love for us, a loving God who is abundantly present to us. We can't exist for each other if we aren't receiving from this place. In the life of contemplation and action, we can't do the latter well without the former. I remember Paul's words, if I do anything without love, I'm a resounding gong. I need to return to the source of my belovedness so that I can love this world well, so that I can lovingly and actively pursue justice and peace for the sake of renewal. As Thomas Merton says, Action is the stream, and contemplation is the spring. Without the spring, the stream runs dry. Without the spring, I'm tempted to perform or lose steam. Our world is quite noisy, and we can often be quite good at busying ourselves with things to do. But contemplative prayer helps us actively love the world from a less noisy center. Helps cultivate a restorative awareness of the love that first loved this world, that first loved us, that first loved our neighbor. Like scripture, uh, contemplatives often seem drawn to water metaphors. Maybe that's why we talk about rivers so much at Artisan. In scripture, Jesus offers himself as a drink to those who thirst. Isaiah prophesies of streams of living water where dry landscapes become lush. And as we saw today, we are called to give cups of water to the thirsty. This week, while reading Barbara Holmes, I also discovered Howard Thurman, 
a poet and contemplative whose writing fueled the nonviolent civil rights movement. In her book, Holmes shares about Howard Thurman's life, a life of contemplative and creative activism. No surprise, but Thurman was drawn to water, water metaphors too. For Thurman, contemplation is engagement with the inward sea in each of us. Thurman explains that love is rooted in the deep river of faith. And this river, he says, will help oppressed people overcome persecution. It may twist and turn, he writes, fall back and stumble over hindering rocks, but at last the river must answer the call to the sea. When she's describing Thurman's own contemplative practice, Holmes says that contemplation awakens an actionable love, a fire shut up in the bones that inspires action. But like any stream or river, this action always returns to the sea. The stream always needs its source. As people invested in the renewal of all things, we have much to learn from Thurman, who wrote that the movement of the spirit of God often calls people to act against the spirit of their times or causes them to anticipate a spirit which is yet in the making. This tells me that the way of contemplation and the way of action are inseparably invested in practicing resurrection, participating in that which is yet in the making. By committing ourselves to these ways, Thurman says, we receive wisdom and courage to act. And it all stems from our engagement with that inward sea. Yes, we are called to give cups of water to those who need it, a small but vital first step on the path to right relations. But we're not asked to find the water ourselves. We have been given this inward sea, a deep river of faith, a spring of contemplation, a stream of living water. At this point, I think I'm definitely mixing water metaphors, but you get the point. So let's follow Thurman in returning to that inward sea, a sea that's always there. We are surrounded by it. It is calling us home, reminding us we are loved, and reminding us that we need our giver of life if we are to fight for life in this world. As we ask with the psalmist, how long? Let's contemplate this lament of ours, taking it to the one who feeds all change, feeds all renewal, because maybe our lament is a kind of thirst. And if lament is a kind of thirst, we need to bring it to the waters to feed it, to give it life. That generous spring, the sea that holds all suffering, we need to take it there. And from here, we might walk away with a renewed energizing awareness of God's ever-present love for this world. According to the logic of contemplation and action, it's from that place that our work is profoundly shaped and where we, our people, are shaped in turn.